Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. Our sermon for today, Sunday, March 14th, 2021, is entitled Incarnation, God is in the House. This is part four in our ongoing Grounded worship series for Lent, examining core concepts that shape what and how we believe as Christians. It's a reflection on a reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to learn more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, or would like to join us for worship some Sunday live via Zoom, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Our scripture reading today comes from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let's listen together to what may be very familiar words to us, and listen together for a living word from God in these words, from the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through the Word. And without the Word, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in the Word was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The word The light was in the world, and the world came into being through them, yet the world did not know them. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, who trusted in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of humankind, but born of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a parent's only child, full of grace and truth. Friends, God is still speaking to the world. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. When I was in seminary, working on my Master's of Divinity, the most grandly named graduate degree of all time, and preparing for ordination to the Ministry of Word and Sacrament, ah, I received a perfectly puncturing gift from a mentor, a little book entitled, Ministry is a High Calling, Aim Low by Kurt Schuerman. 
Despite its diminutive size, the book was about the same size and shape as one of those little paperback books you used to see next to the checkout stand at the grocery store, you know, word searches and weight loss and Reader's Digest quotes. This little book was full of really good, really real-world advice for pastors, new pastors or pastors who need a refresher course. It was full of advice on topics like the real church calendar, which of course includes Super Bowl Sunday as a holy day of obligation, and a list of words you learned in seminary that you should never use in church. Words like eschatological, or prelapsarianism, or ding on Zeke. Don't ask. Incarnation is one of those words, too. Despite the undeniable historical fact that incarnation, the idea of the enfleshment of God, that God shares our humanity, particularly in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, incarnation is one of the bedrock value-added notions of our Christian faith and has been since the very earliest days of the church. But of course, that's the whole idea behind this grounded worship series, to foreground what's in danger of getting lost in the background of our day-to-day faith, those core ideas that shape what and how we believe. Now, the one time a year in the course of the real church calendar when it's really okay to talk about incarnation is Advent and Christmas, of course. If you were wondering if I had gone off the rails or simply forgotten to change a hymn from a former bulletin, and that's why we were singing a Christmas carol this morning in March, nope, that was planned. Because Advent and Christmas is the one time a year as we remember the birth of Jesus that we talk about incarnation. Or in fact, really, it's when we sing about incarnation. As we ask the musical questions, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping away in a manger, who is somehow true God of true God, light from light eternal, pleased as man sick to man sick to dwell. It's in this same holiday atmosphere, high on tradition, but awfully, often oddly low on actual reflection. Think about that. This holiday atmosphere that is so often high on tradition, but oddly low on actual reflection, that we most often encounter this idea of incarnation and this, let's call it, thickly settled passage from the Gospel of John we heard again today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through the Word, and without the Word, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in the Word was life, and the life was the light of all people, the light that shines in the darkness and is not overcome. 
The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And to all who received him, who trusted in his name, he gave power to become children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of humankind, but born of God. In other words, in fewer words, The eternal word of God takes flesh among us in the most surprising way possible. Born an all-too-human baby to all-too-human parents, born part of an all-too-human people, suffering under the domination of an all-too-human imperial power. God becomes human, fully human. And yet, that's about as far as we take it. That's about where we tend to leave the messy idea of incarnation, really, there in the manger at Christmas, just like Will Ferrell's Ricky Bobby of Talladega Nights, insisting that he pray to the little eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly but still omnipotent. Hearing these words from the Gospel of John, we too are liable to throw up our hands and cry aloud, it's a mystery, and leave it at that and go on our merry way. But you know, there we're in good company. The early church didn't know what to make of Jesus either. They struggled around how to think about the incarnation of God, the relationship of the human and the divine in Jesus and anywhere else, for that matter. In the common understanding of the day, grounded, ironically, in the heady philosophy of Plato that still undergirds so much of our thinking in the Western European tradition today, God was God, and human beings were human beings, and never the twain shall meet. God was, by definition, ideal, eternal, And human beings, not. God was so high up and humanity so low down. Completely different orders of being. How could they come together, much less intermingle? It was unthinkable. It was ridiculous. It was offensive. And yet the first four great ecumenical councils of the church at Nicaea and Constantinople and Ephesus and Chalcedon from 325 to 451 CE all centered around this exact question. There was something persisting in the memory of the church about what the church had experienced and continued and continues to experience in Jesus that simply wouldn't let the question go, wouldn't let us go. Something that insisted on holding the human and the divine together despite everything. After much tears, sweat, and blood, literally, 
Despite much stronger, more rational arguments, you know, that the human Jesus only seemed like God, that the divine Jesus only seemed human, that Jesus was somehow possessed by God, and on and on. Those councils upheld the mathematically ridiculous proposition that Jesus was, is, 100% human and 100% divine. Do the math. That in him, the holy and the human are intimately related, wed, that they have become one flesh. And incarnation became orthodoxy. Which doesn't mean that that's what we think and believe most days. Which doesn't mean it's easy to hold on to. In fact, it's a notoriously slippery idea in the history of the church as evidenced by how often we don't talk about it and its implications. Instead, we let our theological focus slide off onto easier ideas, easier to grasp, about the relationship between God and Jesus and God and us, between the human and the holy, which is totally understandable. Physicists do this all the time. They know that light is somehow, mathematically impossibly, both a wave and a particle. But it's just easier to treat it as one or the other, depending on the circumstances. The gospel writers and their communities, the communities formed in their sharing of the Jesus story, did the very same thing as they tried to pin words on the experience of Jesus treating him more or less human, more or less divine at different times. A more obviously divine Jesus knowing the unspoken thoughts of those around him, walking on the water, raising the dead, rising from the dead. A more recognizably human Jesus retreating from the crowds, angrily cleansing the temple, praying in the garden that the cup of suffering would pass him by until sweat rolled down like drops of blood, being raised from the dead. My guess is that for most of us, most days, we are most comfortable with what I call a superhuman Jesus, a uniquely divinely empowered figure unlike any other and bearing as much relationship to us and us to him as we do to Cal L, a.k.a. Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman. At least this seems to be the default understanding for most Christian churches and most Christians, despite all those edicts and teachings and pronouncements of the early church. This everyday Jesus, then, this everyday superheroic Jesus is easier to deal with because he's a blip on the radar. He is an anomaly, a one-off. He is to be admired, surely, and appreciated, and looked up to, often quite literally, 
oohed and awed over, but ultimately, oddly, dare I say, meh. What have you to do with us, superhero Jesus of Nazareth? If you can do things because of your divinely inspired nature that we can never aspire to, then what's the point, aside from a round of polite golf applause? It's an understanding that keeps God safely in his heaven, as poet Robert Browning said, ensuring all's right with the world by steering clear of the inevitable disruption of divine power, divine will for justice, peace, and compassion loosed among us here on earth. We can avoid all that if we limit it to Jesus, limit the incarnation to Jesus. Superhero Jesus does for us and to us once and for all on the cross and at the end of days, but to put it bluntly, he floats six inches off the ground So what good is he to us here and now? What can he really know about our lives in the messiness of human existence? What difference can the incarnation really make in how we live these lives if it just replaces one imperial Lord lording it over us with another, albeit kinder, gentler Lord of Lords? The chain of being established by Plato is still firmly entrenched with God on top, then Jesus, then men over women, adults over children, Europeans over non-Europeans, light skins over dark, cisgender over transgender, healthy over infirm, what we call uh, able bodies, which are really just temporarily abled over disabled and down and down and down and down. Friends, I want to tell you today that incarnation can make all the difference in the world. Incarnation can smash these hierarchies that keep some few up and so many so far down, down, down. But only if we take it seriously, only if we consider it more than just once a year. Only if we work it out and extend its implications out beyond the high holy days into the workaday world, the real world beyond the Bible, outside the church doors. Humor me. What if the incarnation isn't just about the nature of Jesus, but about us and our nature as well? Ours and everyone else's. What if we took the Genesis account of creation seriously, and not in the sadly all-too-usual anti-evolutionary way, but that bit about God breathing the divine into us, forming us in God's own image from the beginning and forever? What if God dwells not just with us, but in us and among us, and not, crucially, just in Jesus, but in you and me and those folks over there, in our neighbors, in strangers, even, God help us, in our enemies. And not just in the hashtag blessed, 
but in the beaten down, the denied and diminished, the poor, the marginalized. And it's got to be said, not just in the able-bodied, but the disabled, not just in white bodies, but black and brown bodies. All those bodies we treat too easily as less than. Everyone, Jesus called the least of these, understanding us in our worldview all too well. In that famous passage from Matthew chapter 25, as in the hungry, the thirsty, the other, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, as in whatever you do to the least of these, my siblings, you do to me. Jesus himself sets up a radical solidarity with all of humanity, particularly the less pretty parts that we like to push out of the spotlight. Jesus himself identifies us as siblings, After all, Jesus is the Son of God, and we too are children of God. If he's a son and we're children, then we are siblings and we are family. We share the same nature. This is part of that obtuse beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus opens to our minds and our hearts and our bodies to a new understanding that we are together in God's holy nature, that God is with not just Jesus, but with us, in us and among us. So that when Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment that we can follow in our lives is to love God and love our neighbor and love ourselves, we understand that in Jesus, all three of those things collapse. That to love God is to love your neighbor and to love your neighbor is to love God. To love Jesus is to love yourself. To love yourself is to love Jesus and your neighbor and God. It all becomes this wonderful, heady, holy mix God is in the midst of us. God is in us. Just imagine. Use your theological imagination and imagine how different our world would be if we greeted one another, recognizing in one another God, the Holy the divine. Imagine. Imagine. This is what happens if we take incarnation seriously. If we don't pack it away every year in January with all the Christmas baubles, but keep it front and center in our theology. Imagine that every single person you meet, the person you wave hello to on the street, the person you flip off because they didn't use their turn signal on I-95, your mother, your siblings, your father, your cousins, the people who live across the street, the people who live across town, the people who live on the wrong side of the tracks, the people who are living and working supposedly on our behalf in Washington, D.C., the people who live in nations far away in time and space and ideology from our own. 
The people who watch CNN, the people who watch Fox News, the people who watch MSNBC, the people who don't watch any news at all. Imagine what the ethical mandate would be for us if we saw and understood everyone the way we understand Jesus. What if, just as Jesus is the face of God turned toward the world in love, our faces and theirs were the face of God turned toward us, toward one another. This is the radical idea that we find so hard to focus in our day-to-day life. It is the revolutionary idea that Jesus came not just to preach, but to embody in his very being. Not to do for us and to us, but to show us the way so that we could do it ourselves with and for one another. We are part of the large family of children of God in the world. Which is not to say that it's easy. Family never is. But this is the mystery that lies at the core of our faith and empowers our ethical action in the world. I want to close by sharing with you a prayer that I learned yesterday. It just so happens that I was registered for the Super Saturday event held every spring by our Southern New England Conference of the United Church of Christ. And I had registered for a workshop on making congregations more welcoming for persons with disabilities. I was not prepared for God to show up in the way that God did in that workshop. And so I want to share these prayers. The first adapted from a litany by Jean Taylor. Holy God, created in your image, we spill coffee. Holy God, created in your image, we lose our memories. Holy God, created in your image, we lose our reasoning skills and imagination. Holy God, created in your image, we lose our emotional and relational skills. Holy God, created in your image, we are injured by accidents. Holy God, created in your image, we do not hear or see or speak. And yet you call us beloved. You name creation, blessed. In our vulnerability, we are created in your holy image. And yet we are more than these. Holy God, created in your image, our community with one another is our strength. Holy God, created in your image, we have one another to clean up the coffee and to tell the stories that we forget. Holy God, created in your image, we trust one another and you to remember to whom we belong. Holy God, created in your image, we have you to behold in wonder and in awe. Friends, may your eyes be open 365 days a year to the wonder and awe of the divine that dwells so richly in you and in everyone else.
Let's embrace one another as we embrace the incarnation of God among us. So friends, if you've heard the word of God preached here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.